Hi. Kimberly, you're with us. I am. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, you've got Alan on the other side. I'm here someplace. Oh. Fresh out of surgery, as you can see. No, I... I'm like, I'm, it's Sunday. I was doing yard work. I wanted to be comfortable, so therefore... In your scrubs? In my scrubs, yes. Those are very comfortable. I They're, used to work at a hospital, so... They, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. So I you, do. you, Mr. Suit and Tie, yes. shut up. All right. <laughs> From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Disassembling the video gamer stereotype. He's no longer a 15-year-old pimply-faced nerd on an Xbox. There's almost a 50-50 chance it's a woman over the age of 20 with a kid at soccer practice. We'll introduce you to video game writer Kim Sparks to talk about the evolution of the game and the gamer. Plus, Star Trek Discovery lands in Toronto for Season 2 production, and we'll tell you how you can spin the soundtrack to the motion picture old-school style. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. All right, old man, pop quiz. Uh. What was the very first video game ever? Pong. Gotta be Pong. No, no, no. What? This predates Pong by almost a decade. It was Space War. Space War. I don't remember that... I remember playing Pong in the Gamble's department store in Winnipeg on my way home from accordion lessons. <laughs> wow. My mom was very upset that I was spending dimes and quarters on this thing. What is space war? I've never heard of that. First of all, that is a loaded sentence in and to itself. Oh, there's listen, there you we could spend the entire program uh, program unpacking that particular comment. But anyway, what uh, what space war? Back in 1962, Steve Russell, Martin Gretz, and Wayne uh, Wittenen uh, programmed a deck a DEC PDP one over at the Massachusetts Institute of technology and it was a very simple very basic game I, I suppose the best way to describe it is kind of like asteroids but instead of shooting at the asteroids you were shooting at your uh, opposing player now have you ever heard of a pdp1 vaguely remind me this this was a computer that was taller than you the one had 2700 transistors and 3,000 diodes. This sort of predates the whole integrated circuit chip. Uh, it gave off an awful lot of heat, and I'm guessing it didn't have a lot of memory. No, it had six bytes. <laughs> six bytes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Fine. But it's amazing how far we've gone, even you know, from 1961 all the way up to, well, 1971 was, was Pong and Nolan Bushnell, who adapted the, the Space War game uh, for all of that kind of stuff with his own thing uh, as well. But we've got this new survey that was conducted for Dell Computer's Alienware Gaming PC Division, which, by the way, if you're Canadian, Alienware was a Canadian thing before Dell bought it. Was it really? It was. It was. A couple of Canadians built it. Half of Canadians identify as casual gamers. Only 1 in 10 of the 5,700 surveyed are actually teenagers. 48% were in their 20s or 30s, so that, of course, breaks the stereotype of a lonely teen in his parents' basement. Almost all the respondents were in a relationship, and get this old man, 
almost <laughs> half of the gamers were women. That's interesting. What is the demo of the female gamer? I don't know the answer to that. But the funny thing is, is that we've hit a point where it is no longer relevant that women play video games. There was a time when the stereotypical 15-year-old pimply-faced boy was, in fact, the typical gamer. But we have long surpassed that and, and achieved virtually gender parity on the topic. I'm not surprised because I have seen footage of some big esports events, and I have seen a significant number of women in the audience and a number of women who are also playing. So I, I never really thought about breaking it down because... Um, but you're right. It, it, it's it's interesting that we've evolved beyond that. When I was uh, managing an arcade back in the day, it was all guys. It was all dudes. I've known you for years. I didn't know you managed an arcade. Well, I worked at an arcade. Oh, okay. All right. Comes in. How old are you? Uh, I was 16, 15, 16. All right. So you're still in the pinball wizard stage. We had a lot of pinball machines. Most of them were mechanical. We were starting to get into the electronic ones. And then we had a couple of stand-up video games. I don't remember what they were, but this predates things like Galaga and and uh, Pac-Man and all those other ones that became very big in the early 80s. But I remember... Um, what was that one where you shot the aliens where they came down? You're talking Space Invaders. Space Invaders, thank you, yes. The original Space Invaders didn't actually have color. It was black and white, and they laid out cellophane strips between the CRT and uh, the actual plastic so that as they came down, they changed color. That's exactly the machine that we had in the arcade, yes. They, they started at blue, and then they went green, or green, and then blue, and then red, or something like that. Our guest has worked on such video games as Ghost Recon Future Soldier and helps mold the minds of future game developers at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology. Kim Sparks joins us from her home in Toronto. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is really cool. You grew up to become a person who makes video games. When you told your parents that this is what your calling was, this is what your vocation was going to be, what did they say? Uh, by this point, they were pretty used to crazy things like that. They just rolled with it. I guess the gender balance is really no surprise to you. We still face a lot of criticism from some of the uh, those young male players who think that we're invading their space. Uh, I know that you had mentioned wait, 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 back up. People who are playing alongside, the, the dudes that are playing alongside with you are upset that girls are in their playhouse? Yes. You're kidding. I will... I, I sometimes played online, uh, but I would stop playing after a while because as soon as they hear your voice as a female, th things have changed. Um, every year gets better. But, you know, the barrage of comments, as soon as they know that you're a woman. Well, uh, what kind of comments would you get? Oh, come on. I'm sure you understand what those comments <laughs> well, are. I, I, I think I, the bigger I, point, though, is, yeah, I think the bigger point, though, is that it's such a, a vocal minority. That according to the survey, anyway, it's only 12 percent. Right. But 12 percent make up 99 percent of the headaches that a woman playing online would face. Right. See, we had a long discussion about these sorts of things over the weekend, me and the wife. And uh, I, I, I continue to be very embarrassed for my gender. But OK, let's move on. <laughs> well, you know, we what still, the... sorry, we still make uh, much less in the esports um, 
space than men do as well. You know, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to interrupt again. What are you okay. talking about? You mean for the, for for in terms of 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 the prizing and then what you would you know end up getting paid for for appearing in these events? Absolutely. If you look at the top male gamers in the world, they they're making a million dollars a year, and I think the top female gamers are. Uh, quarter of that a fifth of what? that why why i don't understand this in, in, in the me too in the me too times up world why is this that's that thing we just i don't know uh-huh. <laughs> so right. I catch right. up. Again, again i continue to be embarrassed for my gender but continue <laughs> well let's let's continue on on what defines a, a gamer you know i was talking to wifey about this as well and uh, she is uh, glued to her casual iPad app games. And when I asked her, do you consider yourself a gamer? She said no. Uh, and But the thing was, was that most people consider themselves a casual gamer, which I, I think is a little bit different than the perception of someone who's playing, for example, a, a Ghost Recon style game. Do we have to adjust our expectations as to what it means to be a gamer? That's the the age old question. I think the the people who play the those AAA games, the ones on the Xbox and the PlayStation and stuff, are um, what you would consider gamers. But when you look at the at the uh, survey at the beginning, you had mentioned fifty percent of of women play games, but they are in the casual game market, and that's sort of the great divide. Real gamers are the ones who people who think of them as themselves as real gamers are the ones who play those AAA games, and casual gamers, you know, even though I, if I play casual games, oh yeah, this is just a casual game. It's just sort of this this great divide. But you're right. In fact, we are all gamers. I wonder, though, there's the nerd side of me who grew up playing video games like Marathon and Doom. <laughs> right. My favorite, of course, was Duke Nukem. Yeah. <laughs> Turn bloating. No way. Oh, God. Toilet and warp power. Okay, great. This one is like, not, not, huh. It's like, ha, the caption's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are funny. Okay, here we go. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, this one's getting me. Uh, the captain's I can't do it. Every time I think about it. Oh, this is this is silly. Uh, the captain's lock. I can't do it. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. You people have to listen to all these outtakes. I'll get it right. Uh, the captain's lock. Okay, stop. Okay, I can't look at anything. Serious. Dead babies. Dead babies. Uh, the captain's lock. To me, those were video games. Yes. Uh, when, when you play Bejeweled Blitz, that doesn't feel like a game to me. That feels like a distraction. You can play these casual games for five minutes at a time. You can't play a first-person shooter for just five minutes. You never saw me play Wolfenstein 3D. Well, that's because you got your ass handed to you by the nerds <laughs> in the first five minutes, and then you threw your hands up. Rage quit. It's true. true. I guess it's just the perception. You know, if you look at, I can't remember the exact definition of a game, but if it's like um, something that presents obstacles in a fun way and you overcome them, it's a game. So... Um, does a casual game do that? Absolutely. That you get to play in five minutes? Doesn't matter. Uh, there's some great games out there that last a couple of hours. Some that you could play, you know, the open world games like the GTA series. You could play for years, you know, as you explore the entire areas. Um, they're all games. 
So See, it, I, I think really, it's just how we reframe it. Sorry. I really haven't evolved much beyond Tetris. <laughs> and I, I can actually play Tetris for several hours. Yeah. Uh, so is that a distraction or is that, or am I competing against myself? What is that? Both. Okay. <laughs> so I, I guess we also have to look at what defines someone as a gamer when it comes down to the amount of time you spend. One in three spent no more than five hours a week. But if you are plugging 20 hours or more into a game, that's still only 18% of the demographic, two in five or, or so. Most of us really aren't spending eyeball blistering lengths of time playing games. Well, I hope not. I mean, you hear about those Korean guys who drop dead after staying alive or staying awake for 33 hours at a time and becoming completely fried. Uh, I mean, 20 hours a week seems to me like a lot of game time. Is it? Three hours a day. Yeah, I guess. Would you spend, if you total up the amount of time playing the casual games, is it an hour a day, two hours? Well, if you put it that way, listen, I spend more than three hours a day watching television. <laughs> True. So if, if I'm a cord cutter and I'm not watching TV and I need some kind of long-term immersive distraction, then okay, gaming, fine, I get it. So when you talk to your students, give me some insight into what you're teaching them as someone who is a video game writer. And I use the term writer in the traditional sense as opposed to programmer. Yes, I teach them the basics of storytelling within games, how to write good dialogue, how to develop uh, engaging characters, um, and putting all of that together. And it's everything from the casual game market. I've written casual games where, you know, um, one game I had to write stuff in 140 characters and make that compelling, which was a challenge and fun. <laughs> yes. Uh, to the bigger games where you're writing barks. I did a game for uh, a brief writing stint earlier this year for Ubisoft in Quebec doing um, barks. So the, uh, Wait, what's, the lines. What's ex explain to me. I'm, I'm an idiot. Uh, explain to me what barks is. No, it's when you come across an NPC or a non-player character in a game and they say something to you. Uh, those are barks. Okay. Traditionally speaking. And so those barks are critical in the exposition of any given game. Absolutely. And they bring a life to the game. You know, you basically, one of the exercises that I have my students do is come up with 25 different ways to say hello. Or if you're a vendor in a shop, come up with 20 different ways to welcome to my shop. Here, is, here are my wares. How would you say that 20 different times? Because when the player comes into the shop every time, they don't want to hear the same line over and over. Okay. Let me, let me back up a little bit. And we, if we're talking about writing a narrative, and I guess I'm going to call it 3D exposition of a video game. What does a script look like? A uh, lot do you, of, yeah. do, you, do, you, do you write, um, I would imagine you start with, with a Bible, like a cast of characters, and then you have, what, multiple routes to victory? Or how does it work? How do you, how do you even begin to lay out the narrative for a video game? Traditionally, it's sort of the game designers uh, working with the game writers. Back in the olden days of, of video game writing, a lot of the times they would write the, the game first and bring in the writer after and say, okay, a dialogue. And you would be scratching your head going, 
this doesn't make any sense. Uh, but the, the game industry has evolved a lot. They work with the writers right from the beginning. And uh, you will often see, if you look at the credits of games, narrative designers. And these are the people who work on both the game design as well as the game, as the game story. And you develop the story. Beginning, middle, and end, you come up with the branching storylines, if that's the part of the game. Sometimes it's a linear storyline that you're working on. You have teams of writers, you know, Bioware, they do hundreds of thousands of lines of dialogue. They have teams of writers, 20, 30 writers working on one game. Uh, same with Ubisoft. And so they all work together to come up with that. So how many lines of code is in a typical video game today, like a, a big, big production? Like millions and millions, billions. Yeah, probably. Wow. Right, because you wouldn't have one individual responsible for the game overall. Like I remember back in my early days in the 80s writing software that you were the only one. You were doing all of it. These games are way too complex now just to hand off responsibility to one individual. No, of course. And and what's the budget for a big, big league game now? Oh, millions. Like, $30, 40000000 million. Okay, so this is like a mid-level Hollywood film. Absolutely. What would a game like that gross? If you look at some of the big games that come out, they will set better box office records, you know, selling records for the first day of release than Hollywood movies, most Hollywood movies, even mobile games. Yeah. How is this being affected by, are are people buying, um, and you'll have to excuse me because I don't have an Xbox or a PlayStation. How many people are buying the actual physical game versus the number of people that are going online and like with Steam or something to play their games? There's so many different kinds of games now and so many different platforms that you can play them on that it's all of the above. Some people will play, I know a lot of people will stand in line, you know, if there's like the next Halo game or... Um, Assassin's Creed or something, they stand in line and they wait for it to, to be released so they can buy their copy. Some people will download it. Some people wait a couple of years and get it on Steam or um, Xbox Live or, you know. So all of the above. of gamers said that they had played a virtual reality game. And as a big VR nerd, the one thing that interests me is the evolution of the storytelling generally, because it is always going to be first person, not necessarily third person. The cutscenes can't exist in the same manner because you can't take someone out of their body. The way you walk around is critical as well. I can imagine storytelling evolves dramatically when you're writing for VR in the first person like that. Sure, it changes the scope of how your player character sees things. So you have to work around that. Um, the same if I'm going to be developing a game for a mobile game, the, the player is going to be looking down at this tiny little screen. How does the story come across? How are we going to um, show character um, 
growth or if they have uh, reactions to things. Um, so it's the same in the VR space as well. How much is how much is AI figuring into video games these days? Is there are there games out there where the game learns from you and gets better or more challenging or different the more you play? I don't think so. I mean, in terms of writing it, we try to factor in where the player is going. It's sort of that illusion of choice. If you make this choice, then, okay, I've plotted it all out in this massive, you know, these massive flowcharts. So I know where you're going. You don't know where you're going because it's the first time you're making this this uh, decision. So the AI, there's no... Not that I know of. All I, from my perspective, it's all. Um, it's got to be right coming now. though. As we have this conversation via Skype with you uh, there on screen, I can see behind you clearly you have a young child in your life. I do. Sorry, <laughs> I didn't put my background up. She's ten. Yes, she's ten. Okay, so give us some some insight into what you're sharing with her as far as the video game world. I've got a daughter who's eleven, going on seventeen. Mm-hmm. She's into video games, but for her, it's about Minecraft. It's about the Sims. I wonder if that's a, a gender-based thing more than anything else, because she doesn't play the shoot 'em ups which I would have been playing at that age. She's playing games where you build something and something grows. It's interesting. My daughter is also into Minecraft. We haven't introduced The Sims yet, but uh, we just picked up... I know we're late in the game for Sims 4, but uh, we'll, we'll introduce her to that. We haven't introduced the shooter games yet, just because we'll wait a little bit more <laughs> before we get to go down that road with her. Um, but I think it plays off what girls are doing. It, it, it's, a, it's a fine line. I don't want to get in trouble here. But if you look at what boys play and what girls play it's a little bit different uh but that's changing because there's and there's always girls who are playing you know if you walk down the aisle of the toys r us stores before they disappear there's the boy aisles and the girl aisles and they still do the same thing in in video games um my daughter she likes to play the driving games actually which is also a traditionally male uh domain i guess um but we've introduced that in real life she drives go-karts and she oh, i bet you're gonna let her drive the family car <laughs> no she would like to but uh <laughs> she's trying to get some input because she knows that uh, the next car we get she'll be learning on that's what she says so she's like i i think i should have some say in this she right. likes those fun so, so you're 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 raising the the next danica patrick that's uh <laughs> that that's that's cool so uh, that'd be okay. nice <laughs> Great stuff. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Kim Sparks teaches video game writing at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology. She joined us from her home in Toronto. Thank you. This is great. Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. We have a couple of new interns on the big show. We want to say thank you to Stephen Landry, who donated a dollar per episode, and Jeff Cubberly, who donated two bucks an episode. Of course, what makes it the world's worst intern program is they had to pay us to work on the show. They didn't actually do any work. Uh, Andrew Stokely uh, gave us his annual one-time $100 donation. Ah, Andrew, what a good lad he is. Mr. Moneybags, open up his wallets by going to geeksandbeats.com and clicking the support the show link. You can do that, too. You can either do it via PayPal, or you can use Patreon, which is what Stephen and Jeff are doing. And the neat thing about that is that if you set a lifetime limit, we won't ding your credit card to Kingdom Come every time we put out an episode. Oh, that's lovely. I'm so happy for Andrew. 
Well, I'm happy for us. I'm just happy to have Andrew. And we have a new co-producer for the world's most popular podcast. Who's that? Well, it was last week's new intern, Antoinette Van Den Dickenberg, <laughs> who boosted her $2 pledge to $25. She says just because she wanted to hear me butcher her name again. Nice job. <laughs> so there, I hope uh, you got your, your $25 worth. Oh, I apologize profusely because I'm I terribly, terribly embarrassed when I, I get somebody's name wrong like that. So I fired her off a follow-up. How do I actually pronounce it? She said, well, you could stick to my maiden name if you prefer. That's Antoinette Texiera? <laughs> it's like even worse. All right. Well, okay. here, I, I'm, I'm going to send you the, the message. Send it to me. Let me see if I can pronounce see it. See if you can butcher it okay. worse than me. There you go. How do you pronounce that? Ooh. Uh, yeah. Teixeira? Exactly. So, so I think she's mocking us yet again. I, I think so. Show me how you pronounce her, her, non, her married name. You want to see that one? Well, that one's not hard. It's just it's got extra syllables. It's kind of like when somebody gives you a phone number, but they don't do it in that patter that you're accustomed to. And so you don't know if you actually got it right. Just let me see if I can hit it cold. Go. All right. Three, two, one. Oh, God. Uh, Van Den Dickenberg. Wow. Yeah. Like you expect it to be Van Dickenberg or Vandenberg. But no, Van Den Dickenberg. Doesn't that sound like, like some kind of uh, German royalty? Like she's a countess or something? I think it's a great name. I mean, it, can you imagine if she uh, hyphenated that? With what? Teixeira Van Den Dickenberg. Oh. Ooh, I, I love that. Yeah. Uh, you, that's the kind of name that you don't want to have when you're filling out a landing card <laughs> when you're little, when you have to get it for immigration into some city, yeah, into some country. This looks Dutch as far as the last um, name goes, because uh, I'm getting a lot of yeah. Amsterdam hits here. OK, that could be. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati, from the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine. This is a GNB News Update. So Derek Dresser, our uh, I was going to call him our Starfleet Bureau Chief, but I guess that would be a San Francisco Bureau Chief, wouldn't it? It would be. That's where Starfleet will be headquartered at some point in the future. Yes, he writes The View from the Captain's Chair, as he does uh, as a regular series uh, at geeksandbeats.com. He reports, of course, Star Trek Discovery Season 1 ended February 11th, but Season 2 production is now underway in Toronto. I could walk to the studios where they're shooting this, my friend. Yeah, it's not too far from your house. I know exactly where the soundstage is. And Jonathan Frakes will be returning to direct another episode that may involve the introduction of Captain Christopher Pike. I have seen that. Now, the first time that we saw Christopher Pike was in the menagerie of the original series. That was the pilot that eventually evolved into Star Trek. Can you hear me? My name is Christopher Pike, commander of the space vehicle Enterprise from a stellar group at the other end of this galaxy. Our intentions are peaceful. Can you understand me? It appears, Magistrate, that the intelligence of the specimen is shockingly limited. The pilot was never aired, but it became this two-part, it became folded into this two-part series where Captain Christopher Pike, who is horribly disfigured in an accident, ends up on this forbidden planet where he meets this woman and this weird mind-controlling race. Uh, 
Christopher Pike does show up in a few other places along the Star Trek timeline, but we don't know where he came into the universe. We may also get a glimpse of a young Spock. A young Spock. Okay. Now, we have to be careful about that because with the reboot, where does that work out with the reboot? Oh, I don't know. You're the Star Trek guy. I'm the Star Wars guy. All I can care about right now is the Han Solo story coming in May 24th. Uh, whatever. Okay. Well, what do you know? You got a line on a ship? Yeah, I know a guy. He's the best smuggler around. I heard a story about you. I was wondering if it's true. Everything you've heard about me is true. L3! Let's go with the mean man's face. Who are these guys? If you come with us, you're in this life for good. I'm going to have to think about the Spock thing because we have to figure out where it he... Where young Spock will fit in? Will he fit in with the original Zephram Cochran line where he initiates first contact after Zephram Cochran fires up the warp drive for the first time? Or will we go to uh, the, the reboot version of Spock where he, he comes in in a, in a slightly different way? So, okay. Those bastards over at the CBS store, back in October, I decided I was going to buy a Discovery t-shirt for my daughter and me because we were watching the, the show. Uh, and the neat thing is, is that when they're sort of off duty, that they're sort of quasi still in uniform, their Discovery black t-shirts read Disco across the front of them. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. So as they're doing the big jogging scenes and all that kind of stuff. So I thought, I'm going to get one of them for my daughter and one of them for me, and, and it'll be a little awesome thing. And then they sell, of course, the Com badge before they were comm badges, they were essentially Starfleet dog tags. Yeah. And if you see in the very first episode of Discovery, um, when the Klingon flips over the captain's uh, comm badge dog tag, it has her name engraved on the back of it like it would be a dog tag. So I ordered two of them, a captain's one and a science officer one for me. <laughs> and I was going to get them engraved. And then the bastards at the CBS store canceled without even telling me the t-shirts. And now I keep getting notifications that they pushed back the uh, badge this was supposed to be a Christmas gift. It's now May. Mm. But you can buy a vinyl 1979 reproduction of the Star Trek The Motion Picture soundtrack now. This soundtrack is also available on in HD video, or sorry, HD audio. If you go to a, um, a site like HD Tracks, you can get a, I think it's 196, one, no, 192, uh, 88 version of this particular, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, 192.24, I guess it is, version of this soundtrack. And I'm tempted to buy it because apparently it sounds unbelievable in HD. 84-minute recording of a 98-piece orchestra fronted by Jerry Goldsmith.
One of the biggest developments in virtual reality was made public over the course of the last week involving walking around in VR. As you know, if you've got a living room in one of those VR headsets, you are confined to that space, right? Right. Yes. So eventually, if you walk in one direction, you are going to be you're going to either hit the wall or the guardian system in VR will pop up to indicate if you keep walking, you're going to hit something. And so you stop and you turn and then you adjust your field of view. Over at Google, researchers have figured out how to take advantage of the saccades in our vision to trick us into walking in circles, but thinking we're walking in a straight line. Do you know what a saccade is? No, I have no idea. I was about to ask you. Or a saccade. It's uh, when you look at anything, you maybe say, just for simplicity's sake, a newspaper. You don't actually look at it from left to right, left to right, left to right as you read a column. Your eye actually darts around the scene, building a map of what that scene in front of you looks like. So you don't actually look at anything in a linear fashion. But you're unaware of that because your brain is filling in the blanks for you as you move along. So when your eye eyeball quickly darts into one particular corner of a scene, what Google has figured out how to do is to recognize that you've done that and then tweak the scene ever so slightly so that you don't really notice it. But the scene has moved a little bit to the left now. And then the next time you do a saccade, which is a fraction of a second later, it'll do it just a little bit more again. So it's tricking your brain into walking into circles by adjusting that 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 corridor if you were say walking down a straight corridor into a little bit of a twist so imperceptible that your body naturally moves in the in a circle and you think you're walking in a straight line interesting so it nudges you it nudges you so that you know for example my play space is about 12 feet by 16 feet well i ran into the wall when we were playing right but what the game would do is if you were running in in any given direction towards a wall it could warp the room that you think you're looking at into tricking you into turning as you ran towards the wall and you would never actually hit it very clever okay so we are one step closer to the holodeck. And they've also figured out how to map um, objects in that play space as well. So if the cat walks by, it can direct you around the cat so that you don't step on it by making you think you're walking in a straight line when in fact you aren't. So you take that uh, as one of the key elements of virtual reality and that just leapfrogs us to your holodeck. Interesting. Okay, well when we get to the holodeck... I'll invite you over. Yeah, brothel program number one. Yeah, well, you can do that one solo. Uh, I would be inviting you in. Program complete. Enter when ready. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.